This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up ahead of Valentine's Day, we investigate the alleged romance between Elizabeth I and Robert Dudley at Kenilworth Castle. Here is this young, handsome man who keeps taking the Queen off when she ought to be getting on with the business of running the country, going off gallivanting around the countryside, hunting and otherwise generally having a good time. We'll look at what evidence there is to suggest they were more than just friends. He is her favourite. He is the one who is closest to her and that aroused a certain amount of jealousy, but it was fairly well known and she doesn't seem to have done a great deal for much of her life to do anything to dispel that. And we'll explain how you can walk in their footsteps. If you haven't subscribed to the English Heritage Podcast yet, make sure you do and you'll get fresh episodes in your feed every Thursday. Now, It's almost Valentine's Day, and so we thought we would celebrate by taking a close look at the alleged romance between Elizabeth I and the first Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley, who transformed Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire into a magnificent palace fit for a queen. Joining us this week to put their relationship in the spotlight is Head Historic Properties Curator, Dr Jeremy Ashby. Hello Charles, nice to be with you. First of all, I understand that Elizabeth I knew Robert Dudley from childhood. So does history record accurately when and where they met and how old they were at the time? No, it doesn't. And like quite a lot of their relationship, you have to infer it from other sources. And in particular, this is a discussion that he had with a French diplomat much, much later. But he said that he'd been friends with her since she was eight which is going to place their meeting sometime in the early 1540s. And they are pretty much the same age, which is actually quite significant, I think, in the way that their relationship develops. But as to their first meeting, we don't know the circumstances, and historians can only guess. They have guessed that maybe they met when he might have been in the household of her half-brother, Prince Edward, who's the heir to the throne, the son of, of Henry VIII. We don't know that he was in that household, but it would make sense of quite a lot of other things. And certainly, for example, he was best friends throughout his life with people who had been in the prince's household. So maybe that's the circumstance in which Robert Dudley and Elizabeth first caught each other's eye. And obviously there's two regal deaths before Elizabeth actually comes to the throne. So between the age of eight and the age that she came to the throne. How many years are we talking there? She comes to the throne in her late 20s. So yeah, it's been a quite eventful time for both of them. As you know, as, as, as is said, they're born during the reigns of Henry VIII. Henry dies in 1547. His son, Edward VI, becomes king. He dies in 1553. And then, as we've discussed in a previous podcast, there's a very tempestuous short period when we don't know who's going to come to the throne and eventually it becomes Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII, Elizabeth's older half-sister and she reigns from 1553 until 1558 and when she dies then Elizabeth becomes queen in her own right. Going back to the direct relationship between Robert Dudley and Elizabeth then, obviously there is this large period where they have known each other since the age of eight. Why did they become friendly? You touched a little bit about the circles that they moved in, but um, weren't they in trouble together at one stage? 
that may be part of it, but it really does have to be something in their own personalities that drew them to one another as well as just their circumstances. And it is fair, I think, to talk about this as a great love affair, but of course there's a mystery as to how far that relationship ever went. But what I think can be certain is that at least from her perspective, this was the closest relationship that she ever had with anyone. It's a deep emotional bond. She's almost dependent on him. And when he's not there, she's a different person to when he is there. So very clearly, there was just something about them that really clicked. But you're absolutely right that circumstances, in a sense, brought them together with shared adversity. And the best story about all of that is the story that we've just alluded to about the difficult period of the succession of, of Mary Tudor as queen that in 1553, when Edward VI died, there was an unsuccessful coup d'etat masterminded by the Duke of Northumberland, who's Robert's father. He's a very important nobleman. And he had tried to engineer that the throne should pass to Lady Jane Grey. The nine-day queen. The nine-day queen, who was married to one of Robert Dudley's brothers, Guilford Dudley. Famously, that didn't work. And Mary escaped to East Anglia, to Framlingham Castle, where she rallied her supporters. And that coup fell apart and Mary came to London and was proclaimed queen. Robert Dudley and the whole family were in a very difficult position. Their father, of course, had tried to stop Mary becoming queen, so he was out. But Robert had actually played an active part in this. It was Robert who'd been involved in the military expedition from London to East Anglia to try to arrest Mary. So when finally Mary's forces catch up with him, he's in a very bad position as well, and he's taken off to the Tower of London and every expectation that he would at least be tried as a traitor because he'd been on the other side. And of course, Lady Jane Grey, she didn't meet a good end either, did she? She didn't meet a good end. Lady Jane Grey finally was executed in the spring of 1554, and the reason why was that she'd been left to live in the Tower, under, as a prisoner in the Tower of London until that point. But in the spring of 1554, there was a rebellion, and this clearly rattled Mary's government, they thought. While there were forces of opposition in the Tower of London, they would be a focus for rebellions against her, and so the necessary thing to do would be to get rid of them. So Lady Jane Grey is executed. Her husband, Robert's brother, Guildford, he is also executed in retaliation for the fact that other members of the Grey family had taken part in the rebellion. And crucially... Elizabeth, who until that point had been living at Freedom, was also brought into the Tower of London as a prisoner. So Elizabeth and Robert are in the Tower of London at the same time. Had Elizabeth done anything wrong at this point? Yes, a bit of a mystery. She protested her innocence, and one would have to say, well, she would, wouldn't she? But I think the general opinion is that, no, she actually hadn't really done anything, but it was just by virtue of being the person that she was. She was always going to be possibly even the unwilling pawn of people who didn't want Mary, particularly Protestants, who would say, you know, we want to get rid of this person and put someone that we like a bit more on the throne. And Elizabeth might well have been that person. She was the next in line for the succession. So at that point, Mary's government say, OK, we will bring Elizabeth into the Tower of London as a suspect. We know quite a lot about the imprisonment, actually, of both of them. They weren't held in the same place. Elizabeth lived in an area of the tower that had been the royal palace. Ironically, it's actually the same rooms that her mother, Anne Boleyn, 
had lived in when she'd been arrested in 1536 and, of course, was later executed. Robert and his brothers, we think they actually were held on the other side of the fortress, and we know about that because in one of the towers of the Tower of London, there's actually a graffito on the wall that shows the coat of arms of the various members of the Dudley family. And Robert is referenced in this carving, it's quite intricate carving, with acorns, because the Latin word for oak is Quercus Robur, Robur, Robert. It's a sort of pun on his name. And the suggestion has always been that actually they may even have met and that their romance might have flourished while they were in the Tower of London. This seems possible but unlikely. We're never going to know. The possibility is that both Robert and Elizabeth were allowed to take exercise in the gardens of the palace in the Tower of London. We know that Robert was allowed to take exercise. He walked on the leads of the towers and possibly in the gardens. And we know that Elizabeth was allowed to walk in the gardens in the morning or afternoon whenever she asked to do it, but always under supervision that her minders always reported to Mary that she was never left alone. So in my view, it it actually seems unlikely. It sounds as though we have the makings of a sort of a love story, a romance, but it sounds as though, in reality, they didn't have a lot of contact at all, even though they were imprisoned. In as much as we know, they probably didn't have a lot of contact, and there's one other important thing that you need to know, that in 1553, Robert Dudley was already married, and she knew this, that he'd been married since 1550 to a lady called Amy Robsart, who was the daughter of a tolerably wealthy landlord, slightly socially inferior to Robert. But, you know, this was no secret. And in fact, part of the imprisonment of the Dudley brothers was that they were allowed visits from their wives to to come and see them. So in as much as Robert had any romance in the Tower of London, it's just as likely that it was with his wife rather than with his friend, the Princess Elizabeth, imprisoned in different circumstances on the other side of the fortress. It's already getting quite complicated, isn't it? But I can see the seeds of some sort of secret clandestine relationship. Uh, the hallmarks of one are there. There's the sort of joint adversity, joint imprisonment, not a lot of contact, but enough to sort of create a sense of longing, I suppose and dependability, and the fact that one of the parties is already spoken for. So it's it's intriguing already. And intriguing, I think, is definitely the term, because there's an awful lot of gossip and suspicion about them right the way through their lives. The next few years after they're released from the Tower of London and through Mary's reign, little bit shadowy periods for Robert's view. We know that some of the time he wasn't in the country at all, so he wasn't seeing Elizabeth then. In 1557, for example, he's involved in a siege in France at which his brother is killed. But when he comes back to England, 1557 and 1558, again, there's a bit of suspicion about this because Robert's wife, we know, was living in Hertfordshire, pretty close to where Elizabeth was also living at Hatfield House. And if Robert was supposed to be living with his wife, was he also travelling across just a few miles to Hatfield to see Elizabeth? And we certainly know that in November 1558, when Mary finally died, her great seal was presented to Elizabeth and Elizabeth was formally made the Queen. Robert was one of the people that was with her when that happened. So they were certainly seeing one another in some sense at that point. 
and immediately she becomes queen. Robert gets a court post, the master of the horse, which is a very important role. It means that he's responsible for, you know, he's like the logistics of it. He's responsible for her traveling, but also a very key part of her relaxation and leisure going out hunting. She's a great horsewoman. He's a great horseman. It's another element of bond between them. And while he can get her out in the saddle and on horseback, she's really, you know, almost, you know, under his control. She's certainly his responsibility and not the responsibility of all the other courtiers that are trying to get her to concentrate on matters of statecraft. It's a perfect circumstance, I think, for making a quite a lot of people quite jealous. Here is this young, handsome man who keeps taking the Queen off when she ought to be getting on with the business of running the country, going off gallivanting around the countryside, hunting, and otherwise generally having a good time. Isn't that a perfect circumstance for people to say, hang on, hang on, maybe there's more to this relationship than meets the eye? And did she have him at court as well? I understand that that might have happened and she was quite dependent on him being there. Yeah, actually pretty much throughout his life, she has a great emotional dependence on him. That's the way to see it. She needs to have him there. And if he's not there, she actually gets upset about it. And it's it's pointed out, you know, either in person or through intermediaries, that if he's not there in person, she expects to have constant stream of letters from him. So he's, he's, he is really very much a constant presence. But initially, his influence at court, and this is actually important, is personal rather than political. OK, with the Queen, everything to some extent is political. But like, for example, it's only actually after four years that he becomes a member of the Privy Council, the council that governs England. So he gets a court post... But it's a court post that he's part of her entourage, but he isn't actually initially part of her government. He's like a de facto husband and confidant and a best friend as well. I I think that's absolutely right. It's all of those things. I mean, interestingly, her views about this are that sometimes she writes about their relationship as if they're brother and sister. But I think you do have to imagine that as a little bit of special pleading. And as we may discuss a little bit later, how that relationship was presented publicly is likely to have been immensely different to actually what happened when the doors were closed and they had some kind of privacy about it. But yeah, a surrogate husband, she famously never did marry. But he was as close, I think, as anyone ever got to it. And I think their relationship, I'm sure it had some of the character of an actual marriage. Or maybe, you know, there's a modern analogy for this. If we think about political marriages without wanting to go too much into you know into modern politics the spouses of important politicians you know they have an important role and sometimes they seem to come to the fore but otherwise they're expected to be supportive and if they exert any influence to do it discreetly and you know it raises questions about it and all of these things do seem to apply to the story of Elizabeth and Robert Bearing in mind the very tight relationship that they have with one another, why does Elizabeth at one stage seemingly try to marry him off to Mary, Queen of Scots? We probably need to go into the aspect of him not being married at this point. Yes, that's right. And the story of Robert and Mary, Queen of Scots happens in 1563, but that's three years after a very, very important event in their personal relationship, which is the death of Robert's wife, Amy Robsart, on the 8th of September 1560 at the house in Cumnor Place, which is just outside Oxford. It's in Berkshire. And she was found at the bottom of a flight of stairs with a broken neck. 
there was always the suspicion that this was more than just an accident, although actually an investigation didn't reveal anything definite about it. But I think it's fair to say that it actually tainted Rob. The suspicion that there was something funny going on actually tainted Robert for the rest of his life. The suspicion, I think, was that actually it was terribly convenient for Robert and Elizabeth to get her out of the way. It would have, at the most extreme, it would have allowed Robert freedom to marry and certainly would have allowed freedom for their relationship to go further. In practice, actually, it was the opposite that was the case. Because this death had been suspicious, had it been an accident, had it been her committing suicide, and if so, why? Or even whether this was actually even something more sinister, murder. Robert, not in person, but perhaps that he'd engineered through someone else. State-sponsored, potentially. Even not state-sponsored. Well, maybe, maybe he'd done it, and whether she was knowing about any of this. I think it made him toxic. And I think if she had ever seriously countenance the idea of marrying him and maybe we'll come to that one later I think at this point it just made it absolutely too deadly there were always going to be negatives about a marriage between them the principal one being of course the enormous social gulf that separates them yes he comes from an aristocratic family but she's the queen he is her subject her servant and for her actually to marry that would have been an enormous breach of protocol in the way that these things have been looked at. I mean, there had been previous marriages between monarchs and commoners. For example, during the Wars of the Roses, Edward IV had married Elizabeth Woodville. And actually, it had been both scandalous and fairly disastrous in, in, you know, in terms. So I think that would have been a, a difficult thing to do. The other point, of course, is that if Elizabeth had ever married, who knows whether they would have been happy. But politically, she would have given away one of her great trump cards that while ever marriage with someone else was the possibility, they could indulge in the diplomatic game of having foreign princes come and visit and ambassadors and, you know, in a sense, she could almost string them along, which sometimes is a great matter of statecraft. Well, it sounds to me that she has strung Robert Dudley along. Or had he strung her along as well? I mean, who you know, who knows? We'll get to that one in a minute because he <laughs> isn't entirely clear of blame for some of their relationship. But I think what's fair to say is that nothing about this relationship is straightforward. The circumstances, I think, had fairly significant reasons why it would have been a bad idea for mm. them to marry. But since they didn't marry, their relationship actually could carry on, albeit in fairly ambiguous terms, and actually probably grow all, all, the, all the stronger for it. And that's certainly what seems to be that he is well known at court as being the greatest influence on the Queen. He is her favourite. He is the one who is closest to her. And that aroused a certain amount of jealousy. But it was fairly well known and she doesn't seem to have done a great deal for much of her life to do anything to dispel that. The big discordant element you just mentioned earlier, which is what happens in 1563, and it's this very odd, if not bizarre, question of Elizabeth actually encouraging Robert to marry someone else. And why does she encourage Robert off the scene to marry Mary, Queen of Scots? Whether she ever seriously encouraged this, we don't really know, whether it's part of this game. But certainly it's talked about in diplomatic papers around that time. The suggestion is that Robert will be promoted to be Earl of Leicester and that he should marry Mary. But, 
and this is quite significant, they should then both come and live at the English court under Elizabeth. Well, ménage à trois never, never work, and <laughs> Robert was much too, too cunning for that one. He really didn't like the idea of it at all. But it probably, in as much as any rationale for this bizarre event can ever be put, it may have been intended by Elizabeth to block a marriage between Mary and Charles of Austria, which actually would have been quite, politically, that would have been quite dangerous for the people of England. It also, while it would have made a public protestation of what Elizabeth was always trying to convince her, and that she was committed to a life of virginity, that she was married to England, she would never, and look, you know, here she's making this great selfless gesture of arranging the marriage between her favourite and someone else. Well, anyway, famously, it just didn't happen. I don't think any of the players really wanted it, although Mary didn't uh, herself immediately rule it out. And certainly what happened in practice was that Mary quite soon went and married someone else anyway, so the whole plan was off. So what stage does Kenilworth Castle become this environment, this backdrop for this allegedly romantic story, this confusing, ambiguous romantic story between Elizabeth and Robert? Well, rather conveniently, it all starts in the same year, 1563. And 1563 is a year when Robert gets some pretty big concessions. And in particular, he's newly ennobled. He's made the Earl of Leicester, which is an earldom that he holds for the rest of his life. And he gets grants of land. And one of the grants of land that he gets is Kenilworth. Now, Kenilworth is the loveliest castle in the loveliest county of England, some people have said, and I'm certainly not going to argue with them. It's a wonderful place. And it's a great historic castle of England. It had been around since the Norman Conquest. Certainly, it had been very impressive in the 12th century. It had been built up over time. And as well as the castle, which is, you know, a fitting ancient seat for a nobleman, he gets an estate around it, which he later is able to add to, to make an absolutely divine hunting park. And I think this is the great appeal of Kenilworth Castle, that it's a beautiful and comfortable place in the middle of England, where he will not only be able to live in it himself and live the life of a great nobleman, but crucially, if he can get the Queen to travel around on progress, around showing herself to her subject, it's a very convenient and beautiful and comfortable place where he can be the host and she can come and stay with him. And this is what happens for four times. It happens in 1566 when he's had it for three years and presumably by that point he hadn't done a great deal to it. 1568, then 1572, and most famously in July of 1575, by which time Robert had actually completed really the transformation of Kenilworth Castle into a quite luxurious palace. And we know a lot about that 1575 visit because it's described in quite a lot of detail in letters by people that were there, including a mercer of London called Robert Lanham, who writes a description day by day of what they did and what they saw and all the things that the Queen did. And we know that Robert also arranged very elaborate pageantry as part of the entertainment for it. So, for example, when Elizabeth first arrived, he created this sort of Arthurian tableau in which the Lady of the Lake emerged from the mere, the, the great water, body of water around Kenilworth Castle, and told everyone watching about how since King Arthur's time, she, the Lady of the Lake, had been the mistress of this lake, but now 
at the arrival of a greater queen than she, you know, she would hand over the great sovereignty to all of this, at which Elizabeth, in a characteristic and fairly acid moment, said that as Queen of England, she figured that she probably owned all of this anyway. Isn't that right? And everyone doubtless bowed and laughed in, in an appropriate manner. And so it went on for the best of three weeks. This, this kind of very elaborate, very meaningful entertainment. Some of the time, she and Robert do what they do best. They get into the saddle and they go out hunting. But the weather was sometimes very hot and that wasn't possible to do. And for the rest of the time, they have great luxurious entertainments, very lavish banquets. Plays are staged for them. There's dancing. And in order to make sure that the castle had all of the amenities that Elizabeth would expect from the greatest of, of residences, there's new building works and the laying out of a glorious garden. And if you come to Kenilworth now, the buildings, sadly, you'll see in ruin since the 17th century, although, as I can tell you, we've made recently, English Heritage has made some great changes so that it's possible now to get up close and personal with the very rooms that Elizabeth came to live in. But on the other side of the castle, we have recreated the garden as it would have been, as Robert Lanham describes it, the privy garden that Robert Dudley created, where Elizabeth would be allowed to walk on her own with him, presumably, and take her ease and enjoy the pleasures of a fine country living. Yes, and that's the one that we visited in a previous episode. So, effectively, visitors can walk through that Elizabethan garden in the footsteps, through those geometric shapes of that garden, in the footsteps of Robert Dudley and Elizabeth I. Absolutely. And you're not just seeing what they saw. It's a very sensory experience that you see what they saw, but you smell the kind of flowers that they saw. This is a very perfumed garden, gilly flowers, the sort of perfumed perennial flowers. They're, they're very fashionable at that time. They heard things. There, there was an aviary with songbirds that made bird song. You can hear the sound of water splashing in an elaborate marble fountain where a great orb of the globe or possibly a bowl, we've created it as an orb, actually splashes water down into a marble basin at the bottom. And that, again, is something that's described by Robert Lanham. And in fact, there's also a slightly later picture that shows it. And archaeologists found exactly where it was. They found the base of it. So, so mm. it was a great piece of historical and art artistic detective work to recreate that fountain. And we think that it really does give as, as good an impression as it's possible for anyone to get anywhere of the kind of elaborate garden that Elizabeth would have had in her own royal palaces, but also in the houses of the, her greatest courtiers with whom she goes and stays, and none greater than Robert Dudley at Kenilworth. So when was the last time that Robert hosted Elizabeth at Kenilworth then? Tragically, it was that visit, 1575, and that's always raised the question about what his purpose in doing this was. Was this, as some have suggested, the last throw of the dice to make her marry him? Because if so, it didn't work. And there's some rather sad details. When Elizabeth arrived, the clock on Caesar's Tower, the great Norman keep, stopped because while this goddess was walking on Earth, time itself was stopped. But after she left, time didn't restart. Robert always wanted everything at Kenilworth to be left exactly as it had been at that time when she'd been there. 
And that almost suggests that after that point, he kind of went into a, into an enormous decline. That was mm. it. You know, his purpose of life was over. No, sorry. That is, seems to be at variance with events, not least because pretty quickly he married someone else. So might it not have been that his throw of the dice to make her marry him? And it's true that there are themes in the entertainments that do talk about trying to encourage Elizabeth to marry him. But the suggestion, I think, might be he really wasn't seriously expecting that she was going to suddenly change her mind and say, OK, Robert, the jig's up. I will marry you. Actually, in her refusal, as she would always have done, in a sense, it made their relationship simpler. It cleared the decks and meant that he could go and marry someone else. And indeed, that's what happens. On the 21st of September, 1578, so that's three years later, he marries the widowed Countess of Essex, Letice Nollis, who was already expecting his child. That relationship may be, it was already happening when Elizabeth came to visit him at Kenilworth, or it may have started sometime afterwards. This was, it must be said, not something that Elizabeth took very well. She was angry and she took reprisals against him. For example, she called in debts of money that he owed her and that potentially placed him in a very, very difficult situation for a bit. But eventually there was a reconciliation and the last years of of his life, he died 10 years afterwards, for much of that time he still retained her affections and he still spent time at court with her as, as he'd always done. I think just what we come back to is their relationship was never formalised with marriage, but in most other respects, and I hesitate to say whether those other respects included what went on in the bedroom, but in most respects that we know about, theirs was a partnership that had all of the closeness and support that marriage that we would we would hope to be. And so to that extent, I think when we talk about this in the context of Valentine's Day, okay, it's a marriage that didn't happen but it really was a desperately close relationship. And it continued right to the end of his life, regardless of the fact that he was married to someone else, to Letty's Nollis. And most famously, she kept all of his letters. So she demanded that he send letters throughout his life. And when inventories were made at the time of her death, they found one of the letters that she had written in unmistakably her own handwriting, his last letter, those three words on it, about a letter that's, you know, very affectionate, but it's about, you know, matters of business. It's about the ability to import certain commodities, but it happened to be the last keepsake that she would ever receive from this man who emotionally had been the mainstay of her life. And so that's how she treasured it with her. When you take everything into account that we've discussed there, the various red flags, various political handicaps for not getting married, the fact that Robert Dudley was a beta, shall we say, in the relationship while she was the alpha, how do we define this complicated, convoluted relationship? It's desperately difficult, isn't it? And I think, you know, trying to look to contemporaries isn't entirely helpful because they didn't know much more than we know now and they didn't really have any terminology for it, that the circumstances seemed to be unique. Certainly, in terms of her as the Queen, he was a favourite and 
I often think that favourite, when we speak of monarchs, is, is slightly a pejorative term, that it speaks of deep affection, but it also speaks slightly of the natural order getting a bit out of kilter, that, you know, he had an influence and a power that someone of his status really shouldn't have allowed. But, as we said earlier, I think the most important point about it, just as two personalities, were that very clearly they sparked off one another throughout their entire life. That's a remarkable thing. If they really did meet, you know, this is a relationship that lasted for the best part of four decades. That That's pretty impressive going, considering all the other things that happened to them during their lives, the ups and downs. And it does seem to have been the great constant. And she remembered him afterwards, you know, famously towards the end of his life. You know, she had a close relationship with Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, you know, who's a later favourite. But it really doesn't seem to have been in the same kind of order as this particular relationship that she had with Robert Dudley, which really is the mainstay of her life. So when he writes this final letter, is he in ill health or something? Or how does he die? Yes, the last years of his of his life, I mean, he dies of natural causes, but he, he was in ill health. In actually quite dramatic circumstances, 1588, he dies on the 4th of September. But it was only just after the, the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And many uh, people will remember that the Spanish Armada has sort of gone down as being almost Elizabeth's finest hour that she comes to rally the troops in their camp at Tilbury, just up the hill from where where Tilbury Fort now is. And famously, she gives you know, a speech showing the leadership, but also the common touch. I may have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and of a king of England too. Well, Robert was the person who was, you know, in command, as it were. You know, he'd made that camp, but he was already dying. And effectively, he's on the way out. So this is dramatic stuff that's going on. And he finally, you know, succumbs to his ailments and dies at this moment. And that must have been a terrible personal blow for her at the moment when the great threat of, of, of an invasion from Spain had finally seemed through almost divine intervention the Spanish Armada had been blown away and been broken up. You know, the great love of her life. I think we can say that. You know, finally he died. It's a very mixed moment. It is. And he's out of the picture as well, which in some respects almost lays the entire saga to an end. The distraction then stops. She can then be queen. Would you agree? I would say that. And by that time, I mean, you remember, she she's actually well into middle age at that point. So there's never a question at that point of there being any heirs of her body. And thereafter, the question becomes, who's going to come afterwards? So it's not surprising that really the later years of her life, you know, a different in character to the more enjoyable, if you like, headstrong, but also, you know, fancy free period of the early times, there are plots against her that people are very worried about state security that there's a hardening of the differences between Protestant and Catholic in that time. And in a way, it's a, it's, a, it's a much more difficult period. And she doesn't have him to share the tribulations of, of being queen. But, you know, for all that, I think many people, and I, I, I included, you know, have fairly mixed views about Elizabeth. But great, I think, is a term that really is appropriate for her. It's a long reign. It's a very eventful reign. But she really does seem to keep on and, and keep on top of things really right, right till the end. She's, she's, she is a quite remarkable um, and forceful personality and a great figure in our history. But he had had his part to play in that as well. 
You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more on the history of Kenilworth Castle and its Elizabethan gardens, or to plan a visit, head over to the English Heritage website. Next week, we're uncovering the history of religious relics at Battle Abbey. Bits of holy people, objects associated with them, even the ground on which they stood. You know, a real focus of veneration. Thanks for listening. See you next time.